you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Nehemiah chapter 12 with us here this morning. As we start, I have a few trivia questions for you uh, as we begin. Let me see if you can get the answers to these. In 1952, the United States suffered the worst polio epidemic in U.S. history. The virus infected more than 57,000 people, leading to more than 3,000 deaths and 20,000 cases of paralysis. By 1961, so less than 10 years later, there were only 161 cases of polio in all the United States. So from 57,000 down to 161. The difference in result was the polio vaccine. That was created and tested during the 1940s and the 1950s. Now here's your first question. Who created the polio vaccine? Jonas Salk. Well, you guys are good. You're on your game this morning. Very good. Jonas Salk, creator of the polio vaccine. All right, now the second question. Similar to it, in 1954, who won the Nobel Prize in relation to this groundbreaking polio research? Right, John Enders, Frederick Robbins, and Thomas Weller won the Nobel Prize in 1954 for their groundbreaking work with polio vaccine. And finally... Which scientists were elected to the famed National Academy of Science for their work on polio research? Answer, nearly every single scientist associated with polio research, except Jonas Salk. Now, why would the man we all credit with the development of the polio vaccine which was a huge triumph, neither win the Nobel Prize nor get elected or receive entry to the National Academy of Science with all those who worked hard to fight that disease. Well, as it turns out, Salk made a mistake in his response to the triumph of the vaccine that caused him to lose his credibility with the scientific community. It's a mistake that you and I may sometimes make as well The opportunity to make this mistake comes whenever a major project is completed, a relationship is restored, or a character flaw is corrected. And when we make this mistake, it creates a gap in our relationship with others, but most importantly, and for our purposes here this morning and devastatingly, it often creates a gap in our relationship with God. In this series, we've been discussing what it looks like in our lives to rebuild our lives in a godly way. We've talked about the process, and we've talked about the struggle, but now the question is, what do you do when you succeed? What do you do when you succeed in the rebuilding process? What do you do when the wall has been rebuilt? How do we respond to an experience of a victory in our lives? How do you respond to a triumph? What do we do when the healing comes, when the relationship is restored, when you reach the benchmark that you've been fighting for? 
There's a temptation in that moment to make a major mistake. It's a mistake that the people in Nehemiah's story had an opportunity to make once they completed the wall. The completion was a great triumph, a great victory. And as it always does, there came the opportunity to make a great mistake. It's a mistake that Jonas Salk made. It's the mistake that you and I often make in our lives. But for the people in Nehemiah's day, it's a mistake they were able to avoid. At this point in the story, the wall has been rebuilt. The covenant is made between God and his people. We'll talk more about that next week. And the people have begun to move the villagers from around Jerusalem into Jerusalem itself. It's a moment of great triumph. And there's two things that they do in this time. One, the first one I think that you and I would probably do anyways. In fact, probably anybody would do it. The second one is the one that leads to that if we fail to do it, making the same mistake that Jonas Salk made. Let's look at the text this morning in Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 through 47. I'm not going to read the entirety of that, but I am going to start in verse 27. Just a reminder, if you're joining us, uh, you know, maybe mid-series, where we are, Nehemiah is a uh, leader. He was a leader... um, He served as cupbearer to the king in the Persian Empire. We're at 445 B.C., before Christ about, about 450 years before Jesus would come. Uh, And really at the end of what we know as Old Testament history, uh, setting the scene for what would come next, which is the New Testament and the Gospels. Nehemiah is rebuilding the city because the prophecies said that the Messiah, that Jesus would come to the city. And so the city of Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt, a place for the prophecies to be fulfilled. So Nehemiah has come and he's building the walls. And in chapter 12, we see the wall has been rebuilt. And so here's how chapter 12 uh, in verse 27 states it. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba, and from Asmaveth, For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mattaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milai, Gilei, Mei, Nethanel, Judah, and Hananiah. With the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. 
At the fountain gate, they went straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. I'm going to jump down to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service for, of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Now, I know there's a lot in there. And believe me, I practiced saying those names. And I don't know that I got them all right. But let me, before I return to the uh, main message of the mistake we want to avoid, let me just say a little bit of a uh, parenthetical statement on the names. Uh, because there's a lot of names in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, I read a few here, but if you read through the book of Nehemiah at any point during our series, you'll recognize that there are large chunks of Nehemiah taken up by names. So let me open a parenthesis here and give you a little bit of a parenthetical statement on names. Uh, because actually, it says Nehemiah 10 through 12. Almost all of chapter 10 is taken up with names of people who signed the covenant. Almost all of chapter 11 is taken up with names of people that moved into Jerusalem. Now, we might, in your reading, I wouldn't blame you if you kind of skimmed over those kind of quickly in your reading, as sometimes I do. They're not names we know. They're not necessarily relevant to us. It's hard to understand. But that doesn't mean they're insignificant, and that doesn't mean it's not important that they're there. Something important about names. Names are important to us, if you think about it. When we want to remember something important and someone important, we remember their name. Think about some of the places in our country, some of the war memorials, when someone has given their life in service to their country. Uh, the Vietnam uh, War Memorial is one of the most famous. Their name is etched in stone and remembered. It's important to that person's family. It's important to those who want to remember them. You may walk up to that list of names and not know anybody, and there's a distance, just like reading through the names of Nehemiah. But when you know someone there, there's a different response because their name is there, and it's important that their name is remembered. And something important about names, when 9-11 happened, there were all kinds of, I remember seeing on TV all kinds of um, uh, 
boards and things that would pop up and people's names would be on them. People who were searching for their relatives and friends, their names would be on there trying to make contact with, with their names. And there was important, there was a relationship that's meant by the name. If you go to the 9-11 Memorial today, you see this, this, this fountain and the names that are etched there. Every year on September 11th, the names are read of those who are lost in those terror attacks because there's something important about a name. From the very beginning, Names were important to God. God gave Adam a name. Didn't just create him, gave him a name. He asked Adam to name the animals. Adam named his wife. Throughout the scriptures and important moments of history, God often changes a name from Abram to Abraham, from Jacob to Israel. God changes names at important moments in time. If you go and jump to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, it says that those who have put their faith in Jesus, those who have been saved, it says their name is written. Something called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's important about a name. Names are important. From the beginning to the end, names are important. So I understand when I read those names that one of the reasons I wanted to read them this morning is so we understand that there is significance to them. Because if you were in that line of people, maybe you were the grandson or the great-granddaughter of one of those people, and the account of Nehemiah's days are being read, you know, tens or even hundreds of years later, and you know your family tree because many people would trace their lineage back and know their family tree, you would wait to hear the name. Yeah, that's your great-grandfather. He was one of the ones that moved into Jerusalem and helped build the city. That's your great-great-grandfather. He was one of the ones that signed the covenant. Names are important to remember. And so, it's important that they list the names. What's also important about it is the historical value of it. These aren't stories that someone made up off the top of their head. They are, the names are in there so that anyone in the time period could have gone to any one of those people, said, we know this guy. We know one of these names, Ezra or Meshulam. You know, we can go ask him, did this really happen the way Nehemiah said it happened? There's historical accuracy to it. So it lends historical credibility to it as well when you put a name to it. So, importance of names. Close parentheses. All right. Let's get back to the message this morning. Two things they did in response to the wall being built. The first one anyone would do. The first one they did is what you and I would do when you complete a great task. The first one anybody who completes a great task would do it. They threw a party. They celebrated. They celebrated. They had, they, they celebrated like they would celebrate. They had choirs. They had singers. They gathered people in from all around. They said, let's celebrate this great accomplishment that has been done. The building process was hard. The process was long. There was opposition we saw along the way. Internal opposition, external opposition. But now something they couldn't have thought would have been done even a few months ago. There's no way that they would have thought it would have been done. No way anyone would have thought that this group of exiles returned to this city with broken down walls and and totally uh, a mishmash of people that aren't connected, that are fighting with each other, could have accomplished this great work of building the wall. In fact, there's a picture of some rendition 
of what it could have looked like in Nehemiah's time. In fact, the next pic, you can see the little villages out to the side. This is what the rebuilding might have looked like in Nehemiah's time with a wall around the city of Jerusalem, large structure and temple up at the top, some of the other people and leading down the bottom. Of course, this would be a far uh, picture from it. The wall was actually wide enough, as we just read in these chapters, for two choirs to walk along it. So there's no way they could have seen this being done and yet it was accomplished. And so the first thing they do is they throw a party and they rejoice and they celebrate. And of course, that's what you and I would do at times with something big, some great accomplishment. Come on over, come and celebrate. Look what has happened. It makes sense that the people would rejoice and be happy. That makes sense as they had just completed a big project. We would likely do the same thing when something big has been accomplished. The completing of the wall was something that wouldn't even have been thought of several months ago and now is done. But it's the content of the celebration that's significant. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Have you ever gone to a birthday party and there's so much focus on the party that you can hardly tell whose birthday you're there to celebrate? Never been to a time like that where, where everybody's there and everybody's having a good time, but no one's really paying attention to the person that you're kind of there to celebrate. Celebration is good and right at this moment, but the content of the celebration is important. What and how we celebrate says a lot about who we are. It's true if you're leading a business that the things you celebrate will get repeated. It's true if you're parenting that what you celebrate will get reinforced. The content of the celebration is what distinguishes the Israelites as a people. It's the content of their celebration. And so what I want to look at for the last few minutes we have together is two aspects of the content of their celebration, or really one aspect that has two components to it. Their celebration of what they did, they didn't only celebrate, they didn't only throw a party. What they did is, in verse 27, it says, and at the dedication of the wall. They dedicated the work that had been accomplished to God. They dedicated what had been done to God. They they gathered together to dedicate the wall to God. This was not a purposeless, vacuous celebration. This was not just blowing off steam after a long stretch of hard work. This is the good and right conclusion to a major accomplishment by the people of God. Dedication is what I want to talk about this morning. Dedication has two components to it. Dedication has two components to it. The first one is praise. The first one is praise. First, we give God credit for the work. The first aspect of the dedication is they thank God. They recognize that God has brought about the work that has been accomplished. When you dedicate something, the first question you answer is, who is it from? Who's it from? If you go to a dedication of a building, one of the first things they'll talk about is, who's it from? Who made it possible? And so at the dedication of the wall, they rightly recognize that God made it possible. 
In Scripture, several times, it talks to us about how God has been good to us and given us good things. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing in your life, every good gift in your life is from God. Another scripture uh, that talks about this, 1 Corinthians 4, 7b, says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, what do you, what, what do you actually have that was not given to you from someone else? That you didn't receive from ultimately from God? Now, they could say, well, we picked up the stones, we built the wall, we fought off our enemies, but they were smart enough, they were wise enough to know it was actually God that gave them the ability to do it. It was actually God that gave them the victory. It was actually God that gave them the strength to do it. They had a correct perspective of that. Who you give the credit to when you celebrate is important. It says much about you and me. The one we credit in a victory celebration is the one that we honor. At a dedication of a building, you might hear the words, and without whom this day would not be possible. Right? You go to a, you go to a building, and, and they're ready to cut the ribbon, and one of the things they'll say, without whom this day would not be possible. And whose name's coming after that? Often a large donor. Sometimes someone who just worked tirelessly on the project. Other times, maybe someone that just had great skill and brought it about. But they would say, without whom this day would not be possible. I think that's a great epitaph for every single Christian in their life. That on maybe perhaps my gravestone or yours, that at the end of life, we would say, without whom this day would not be possible. And the answer is God. That anything we've done, any good that we've done, any good that we've accomplished, that the credit goes to God without whom this day would not be possible. That the very resurrection itself, the very hope that we have without whom this day would not be possible are words that often should characterize the life really of every Christian. They give credit to God because they recognize that everything they received, even though they had to work hard for it, came from God. It reminds me of the old joke of the two scientists who, uh, who were thinking pretty highly of themselves after they had uh, uh, figured some things out about cloning and things like that. And they, they actually went to God and they said, God, we don't need you anymore. They said, in fact, we can make man ourselves. And God actually answered them back and said, okay, let's have a man-making contest and you go first. And the scientists said, okay, we'll do it just like you did it. And they reached down to pick up some dirt. And God said, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. (laughs) Because everything that we have received ultimately comes from God. The Israelites recognized it. We would be a fool not to see that what we've received comes from God. It comes directly from his hand, and it has been given to us. And so we recognize that. And so the first aspect of dedication is praise. When we fail to give God credit, we make the victory about us, and we overestimate our own abilities and forget where our abilities come from. But there's a second aspect of dedication. The second aspect of dedication is transfer 
of ownership. This is really what dedication is. Transfer of ownership. When you dedicate a something to a purpose, you dedicate it to something. Maybe, remember uh, the times there were, we talk about dedicated phone lines. Uh, the president has a dedicated phone line when it comes to things like the nuclear codes and to certain countries. In other words, you pick up that phone and the only person on the other line is the person that's directed to. It's a dedicated line. It's for one purpose. See, when you dedicate something, it's not only where did it come from, that's the praise, it's also what's it for? What's the purpose? What's the purpose? You go to a building dedication, and maybe a building is being dedicated to the study of science or art. Prior to that dedication, prior to that cutting that ribbon, you can use that building for whatever you want to use it for. But as soon as you cut that ribbon and you say, we dedicate this building to the study of whatever, then after that moment, it is used for that purpose. It is dedicated to that purpose. And so the people recognized that in order to dedicate something to God, they not only had to praise God and say, thank you, God, they also had to transfer ownership of it. Because they not only received it from God, what they recognized was what they received from God was ultimately for God. Dedication is not just where it comes from, it's what's it for. That's a question that needs to be answered. A couple other scriptures that point to this. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, this is from God, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I've received it from God, and now I live my life for God. Another place that brings it out even clearer is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of your own doing, it's from God. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's from God and for God. Dedication is recognizing that it is from God, but it is also for God. And here's where we often make our mistake. We rejoice in the triumph, but we don't dedicate the work to the Lord. We don't give Him glory, and we reserve the work for our purposes and not His. How foolish we would be to see something rebuilt that could only be rebuilt by God and then take it for ourselves to use it for our own purposes. Thanks for the great marriage, God. Now I'm going to go and live my life however I want to and treat my spouse however I want to regardless of what you have to say. Thanks for the healing, God. Now I'm going to go and live out the rest of my days however I want to. And, and, and when I need you again, I might come by and talk to you again. God, we prayed for these kids. Thanks for giving us these kids that we prayed for for many years. Now we're going to raise them however we want. Thanks for the financial provision, God. Really needed you to come through on that. Now I'm going to go spend the money however I want to. Dedication is not only recognizing that it comes from God, but it's also recognizing that it's all for God. 
This was kind of a revelation to me this week as I was studying it because so often I think I've thought about dedication as building dedications and things like this as, as, as almost only one half of it, just saying thanks, God. I, I think sometimes we think of it as let's just say thanks, let's just recognize where it comes from. But the more I looked at Scripture, the more I realized it's so much more than that. It's not just saying thanks for where it came from. It's not just appreciating what God has done. It's saying, God, now I will use what you have given me for your purposes. It belongs to you. If I'm going to be a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ, it means that not only have I received salvation from God, but I have received salvation for God for his glory, to live for him. Not that my works accomplish it, not that I'm doing it to gain salvation, because I cannot, but for, in response to that, I live for God. My finances have been rebuilt by God. I take great joy, but the right response now is to dedicate those to the Lord. I looked in the Old Testament and I looked through all the places the word dedicate was used to try and get a better sense of, of what is meant by being dedicated to God. And I came across the scripture in Leviticus that I'm going to read to you. I, I know, Leviticus of all places, right? But, but I came across this scripture. And some of you, you know, you, I know Leviticus. It's the place you end up getting stuck in your Bible reading plan and you're still there. But power through. Get through Leviticus. Stick with your plan. Um, but this passage in Leviticus says this. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of his family land, its value is set according to the amount of seed required for it, 50 shekels of silver, and then it gives some details of that. Then down a little further, and this is chapter 27, verse 19, it says, if the man who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, he must add a fifth of its value, and the field will again become his. Now, you might say, Pastor, why do you bring that up? That's such an obscure passage. Why are you bringing that up this morning? Because of this. Because what I read about that is it says, when you dedicate something to the Lord, it belongs to God. And you can't so easily take it back from him. This says, that it's interesting with this land, it made a provision that you could dedicate it to the Lord and maybe for some reason you wanted it back, your family needed it back, you could get it back, but you had to pay a premium. You had to pay 20% more than, it was, than, than you gave it away for, that it was worth. You had to pay a premium for it because it belongs to God. You can't just take it back and say, I think I'm just going to start farming the land for myself. You dedicated it to God. It was significant to me because I think we too easily will dedicate something to God and then use it for our own purposes. That we will dedicate and say it belongs to God, but then we just use it however we want to use it. We receive the good things from God, but then just use them however we want to use them. When we dedicate something to God, you are giving it over to Him and you cannot so easily take it back. So parents, when you come up on this platform for a child dedication, it is no small commitment that you make when you dedicate those children to God and you dedicate yourselves to God because you are giving and not only recognizing here's a blessing I have received from God, but here's a blessing that ultimately exists for God and it's his. And I'm a steward for 18 years or a little longer, this blessing, but it ultimately belongs to God. And I cannot so easily take it and use it for my own purposes. 
If that's true, then what impact does that have on us when we call ourselves dedicated to God? What would it look like for us to live lives fully dedicated to God? It would certainly be a recognition that what we have is from Him, but it is also living a life in such a way that we recognize it's all for Him. So I live my life for God. I do this not to earn salvation from Him. I do it because I have received a great salvation from Him. We started out by talking about the importance of a name. Well, think of a child who comes into this world with nothing. But she doesn't really have nothing, does she? She comes in with a name, name of a family, a name that says I'm from something. And if it's a good name, a name that says I'm for something. Perhaps later that child sometimes may be adopted and there's additional name that's given. And that name has all kinds of things attached to it too. In fact, that's even closer to what happens to us as Christians. We are adopted into God's family and given his name, the name of Christ, Christian. You've got a name. It says where you're from, but it also says what you're for child that might inherit something from their parents. They receive something from them, but there's also something that's for. There's a purpose for it. That's what dedication is. Jesus lived in this way, that everything he had received, he said he received from his father. That the life he lived, he lived for his father. John 10.18 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again, this charge I have received from my Father. Jesus recognized that everything he received it was a part of being a part of the Father. 1955, spirits were high. As recent trials had shown a new polio vaccine to be very effective. 1948, Jonas Salk began working on a vaccine in a research lab at the University of Pittsburgh. In 1949, scientists from another lab, John Enders, Frederick Robbins, and Thomas Weller, grew the polio virus in test tubes, paving the way for a vaccine and for this work and for their work that won the Nobel Prize in 1954. In Salk's lab, six researchers, Byron Bennett, Percival Basley, James Lewis, Julius Jungner, Elsie Ward, and Francis Yuroko all worked tirelessly alongside Salk to develop this historical vaccine. By 1955, Jonas Salk was a national hero, which is why many of you knew his name today. In that year, he held a victorious press conference, which would damage his reputation in the scientific community from that day until his death. The room was packed with journalists, and this team of six researchers sat in the front row, shoulder to shoulder. In his speech, Salk ignored the work of the three scientists who won the Nobel Prize, even though without their groundbreaking work, his vaccine never would have happened. In addition, Salk refused to give credit to the six researchers from his lab who worked countless hours to ensure the vaccine's success. 
Nor did Salk acknowledge his mentor, Thomas Francis, who directed the field test of the vaccine on 1.8 million children with the help of 220,000 volunteers, 64,000 school workers, and 20,000 healthcare professionals. All those people involved in his press conference, even with all these thousands of people involved, they all went unacknowledged. As Salk only credited one person with the vaccine's success, himself. Salk's six researchers left the press conference in tears. Salk fractured his relationship not only with them, but with the entire scientific community, and thus he was left out of the National Academy of Sciences. As one observer put it, Salk had broken the unwritten commandment of scientific research, which included, thou shalt give credit to others. Salk died in 1995, never acknowledging his colleagues and stating on the record that they were jealous. If someone does something and gets credit for it, he said, then there is this tendency to have this competitive response. In 2005, the University of Pittsburgh held an event to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the polio vaccine. And at the event, Jonas Salk's son, Peter Salk, said what his father never would. The vaccine was not the accomplishment of one man. It was the accomplishment of a dedicated and skilled team. This was a collaborative effort. Jonas Salk's mistake is the same mistake that you and I may be tempted to make after a great victory, after a great rebuilding process, We may take joy in the triumph, but do not give him credit for the work that's been done. Any triumph in life, any reconciliation, any healing, any restoration, the work of God himself, and he does these things for his own glory so that we might praise him. So when you experience even small victories in your life, give him the credit he is due and dedicate the work to him. Otherwise, you will create distance in your relationship with God. We have a tendency when bad things happen in our life to blame God. And when good things happen in our lives, we tend to give ourselves or others credit. This should not be so. Who brought healing in your life? The doctors? Who brought the restoration? The counselor? Who restores your soul? Who brings you out of depression? Who releases you from addiction, drugs? That time you received an unexpected tax refund that was just happened to be enough to cover an outstanding debt or that time you happened to meet the right person that would eventually become your spouse. Just a coincidence? No. It is God who does these things. He works through the doctors through his people, through the counselors, through many means to bring about victory, but he is the one who brings it. When you experience triumph and reach the end of the rebuild, do not make the mistake of crediting the wrong people with God's successes. We would be wise to do what the people do in Nehemiah. Rejoice, give God glory, and turn the work over to him. What triumph and victory has God brought in your life? What triumph and victory has God brought in your life? Think about it for a second. If your answer is none, 
then you're not paying attention. Or you're taking credit or giving someone else credit for God's work. Because every good gift comes from God. All of it ultimately originates with Him. God is at work. He is rebuilding and restoring life. He's bringing redemption. And when we rejoice and do not turn the work and results over to Him, we steal from His glory. And we create a distance in our relationship with Him. Some of us have experienced God's grace, His redemption, but we've not dedicated the work to Him. We've experienced God's grace in our lives, but we continue to maintain control over our lives rather than giving Him control. It's the old, we have been comfortable making Him Savior, but have not made Him Lord. We've experienced the goodness of family, but we've not dedicated our marriages and children to Him. We've been blessed financially, but we've not dedicated our finances to His work. We've been healed, but we continue to live life how we want to live rather than how God calls us to live. If you want to experience intimacy with God, if you desire to continue to see Him at work in your life, when you experience a triumph or a victory, rejoice, but dedicate the work to God. And dedication is praise plus a transfer of ownership. And when you come to Jesus, when you give your life over to him, that's what we do. We praise God for what he's done. But ultimately, we are transferring ownership of our lives to him. Bible calls it purchasing, actually. It uses a, uses a very... Uh, they uses the very term of purchasing, that God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, has purchased our lives. Because he paid a debt that we couldn't pay, that our sins have incurred. If we don't accept his payment on our behalf, we're left on the hook for the debt. And we can't pay it. So we'd spend eternity apart from him in an effort to try, but at a debt that will never be repaid. The only way is to put our faith in Jesus Christ and through the grace of God extended through him, not through our own work, that we would be redeemed, saved, and really the transfer of the ownership of our life. Say, God, thank you for whom salvation has come from. And now I live my life for you. Salvation is both recognizing who it's from, but also recognizing who it's for. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord. As we close out our time together this morning, I invite you to just take a few minutes of quiet there, a few minutes of sacred space in the midst of your week, in the midst of your day. A moment with just you and God. A moment evaluating and responding to what we have just heard from God's word. A moment to ask yourself. Man who calls himself a Christian. Woman who calls herself a Christian. A moment to ask ourselves. 
are we dedicated to this God that we serve? Do we praise him for what we've received ultimately for him? Have we transferred ownership of our lives, all of it, over to him? If not, maybe it's this moment right now on this day that you would make that commitment. Perhaps you're here and you say, God, I was... I've always wanted salvation and that's always been something that I know I've needed and I've wanted cleansing from my guilt and forgiveness for my sins. And I've received that with joy, but if I'm honest, I've not really transferred ownership of my life to you. Maybe today would be the day that you would do that. Today would be the day that you would say, God, I not only want to be grateful for what I've received from you, I want to live my life for you. I want to use what you've given me as a grateful response and use it all for you and for your glory, Lord. That it's all yours, God. Everything I've received is yours. And just as I come and I trust you with my pain, Lord, may we also be the church and the people that'll trust you with our victories, that'll trust you when things have been rebuilt, that'll trust you when there's a surplus, that will trust you when good things happen, and we will trust you that as we use those things for you, that you will continue to guide and lead us, Lord, that your better is better, that our trust would be in you. Father, lead us today. Lord, make us into the church that not only is grateful for what we have received from you, but Lord, make us into the church that will use everything we have received for you, for your glory, for your purposes in this world. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.